Restaurant Unstoppable episode 1015 with Matt Pepsil. And that really led me to this discovery of what I call the, the three B's, or I call them the three killer B's, which is what all of our human needs at work really come down to. The need for being, belonging, and something bigger than myself. And that last one is where you hear that transcendence come in. So when you describe a podcast mission that's about transforming the world, what I like to say is your aspiration is outside in. You're starting with the world and working back into yourself, but your accountability and your action is inside out. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then... Join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Restaurant owners and operators, you can make a difference in the lives of your staff and their families by supporting CORE, which stands for Children of Restaurant Employees. CORE is a national nonprofit that provides financial grants to food and beverage service employees with children when either the employee, their child, or their partner faces a life-altering medical crisis or natural disaster. Not only can you share CORE as a benefit in resource with your staff, you can also donate directly or host a fundraising promotion. Core critically needs your financial support to continue to provide relief to restaurant employees that qualify for a grant when life does not go as planned. Support of Core allows you to give back to your employees and restaurant families across the country. Visit coregives.com org to learn more together we can make a difference in the lives of those who serve us daily this episode is brought to you by reachify why are you still taking phone calls when you have online services that can support the majority of your guest needs redirect your callers so you can focus on the food and the guests across the counter reachify is powerful and flexible for example with advanced automation and caller deflection reachify prevents missed caller opportunities and diverse callers to online actions Reachify also simplifies workflows for your team, enabling them to operate more efficiently to attract, retain, and engage callers effectively. Reachify, be in control of the conversation you want to have when you're able to have them. Hop on to reachify.io slash unstoppable to find out how to revolutionize the way your restaurant does business. And when you use that link, get one month free after onboarding. That's reachify.io slash unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, it, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Vice President and the Godfather of Talent Optimization, 
of sorry at the predictive index and author of expand the circle enlightened leadership for our new world of work matt Hepsel, my man, are you feeling unstoppable today? I'm feeling unstoppable today, Eric. Let's go. I am psyched to be here. Uh, I got your book a little over a week ago. I have loved it, man. It, it really, it like rejuvenated me. I'm not going to lie. Like listening to this, I resonated so much with your book and the work I'm doing here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Uh, this idea of just kind of, you know, radiating outwards and lifting up everyone around you. And that's, I think that's what we're trying to do here at Restaurant Unstoppable. We're trying to find these leaders in the industry and we're trying to make an example of them so they can lift up others. Huge. Right? So it just, I, I can't wait to dive into it. I'm chomping at the bit, but before we do, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us, Matt? I got a mantra for you today, Eric. When uh, I was at Harvard business school, we went through an authentic leadership development program and they had us come up with our leadership mantra. Mine is I guide other leaders as they climb. And I'm a big mountain uh, climber type person, and I always have a good guide. Guides have to do a lot of things. They have to keep us safe, but they also have to teach us, give us tools, make sure we're having a good time. And it really resonated with me, and I said that's exactly what uh, the proper uh, leadership coaching and leadership development looks like. So there you go. Yeah, man. I love it. Great way to get this thing started. And we have a lot to unpackage today, so I'm just going to start getting right into it. Where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Take us to the beginning. Probably chronologically, I'd say yeah. uh, when I first had my first adult job, my first real job after I got thrown out of college back in the day, I ended up in the Marine Corps. So I started uh, six year enlistment and I knew from the time that I was in fifth grade that I wanted to be a Marine. I said they were the toughest. And I said, that's for me. And when I got in the Marines, I said, I want to be the toughest of the tough. And that was just kind of how I was wired. So I got to uh, boot camp and uh, they shoved a book of leadership principles in my hand and they shaved my head and I've still got the haircut and I still got the book. Honestly, man, I think more <laughs> people should be encouraged to go serve in the military. Uh, there's this crazy pressure to put kids straight into college after high school. And I, who knows who they are at the age of 17 or 18 years old? Yeah, I did not. Absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. yeah. I needed it. I needed it in my life because I, when I got into the, um, into college, you know, I turned in a 0.7 GPA. That's not very good. You know, basically yeah. I didn't drop my classes, but I didn't go to the classes and the university was like, yeah, don't hurry back. And I said, okay, that's all right. <laughs> I, and I was in an ROTC program and I was like, I like the military part. I just don't really, I've been doing the school stuff in high school and, and uh, so when I got into the Marines after a couple of years, I was like, where are those school books? I need to go back to school. <laughs> but there, that's how that worked out. Yeah, man. Um, I mean, not to get too much into my story because we're here to share your story, but like talk about self-awareness. You know, like I wasn't self-aware. I ended up going to school to become a commercial pilot and learned through that experience that like, oh, maybe after finishing, you know, after spending $200,000 on my career realizing, Oh, maybe I shouldn't do this. Right. You know what I mean? So, um, just military is so powerful. So get into how that helped shape, shape you. How, what did you learn about yourself as a Marine? Well, one thing I didn't realize at the time was that there spent so much time talking about leadership development. Now was an, it was a, an enlisted person. So I wasn't an officer, but it, even for us, it was constantly talking about leadership and you have, you know, young men and women and people that are uh, 19 years old and making these million dollar decisions because they've had that leadership indoctrinated into them. And it wasn't until later I realized that the military can't just go out and put a job ad out on Indeed and hire somebody who's not in the military to come take on a senior position. Right. They have to develop from within. They have to go through the process. They have to go through the process. Which is interesting because I've learned through studying some of these most successful restaurateurs, Thomas Keller specifically is coming to mind, the French Laundry. No matter who you are, where you came from, what experience you have, you start at the bottom. 
Oh, nice. And they they make you go through. And I, I think that's the same with the, the military. You have to yeah. you have to go through. They have to form you into the person they need you to be before they start putting you in place. Well, it's got to be 100% true. And yeah. I don't have the restaurant experience, but they teach us something in the, in the military by the numbers. Let's do it by the numbers. And they just break it down like this is the proper way to do everything. Brush your teeth, eat, anything. And I can imagine if you show up and you're like, I already know how to chop up you know, uh, vegetables. They're like, no, you don't. <laughs> Forget everything you think you know about being a chef, you know, you're going to learn from the bottom. I'm sure that's exactly how it is. And that's, that's good design. That's good reasoning to say that there's a way to do this. You need to kind of go through the unlearning process. In our case, it got broken down before we could be built back up. And I was just so thankful to have had the opportunity to go through that. Awesome. So you're in the military. I know you spent, what, six years, 90, 1990 to 1996 in the yeah, military? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I was an Arabic linguist, so I had to go to the Defense Language Institute in California, Monterey, and uh, to learn Arabic. It wow. took, took a long time, and it was a, quite, a, quite an experience there. So, I mean, does it make sense to go deeper into your, into your military experience? you want to package that more, how that steered you post-military? Well, I'll tell you one thing that happened. On my first deployment, we were headed over to Somalia, and I was like, okay, it takes 10 days for American warships to cross the Atlantic Ocean. So you get a lot of time. And some days you can't even go up on the flight deck you know, if, you're, if the weather conditions won't allow it. So I ended up in the ship's library. And what I did is I pulled two books out that I had no idea they would change the course of my life. The first was a book called In Search of Excellence, and it was a business book all by, by Tom Peters and, and Bill Waterman. And it was all about what makes successful companies tick. And I just really enjoyed learning about the business world and understanding about excellence and, and leaders and those sorts of things. And the other was a general psychology book. And it was just Psych 101. And it was like, here's how perception works. Here's how developmental psychology works. I was just fascinated about how much we know about the mind and how much we can control and, and learn and develop sort of the, you know, what's between our ears. Didn't know that later on I would have a 25-plus year going on you know, career in, in corporate world as well as a PhD in psychology because I was just wanting to go deeper in both of those areas. So it was a very fortunate visit to the ship's library that day. Was this when you first realized that you're just so fascinated by the human element, but like what you said, like what's between the ears? Or was this like building up to this point? No, that was the first. I had okay. never had really any exposure to psychology at all. So at this point now, think about it. I've been thrown out of college. I've got nothing. I'm six years in the Marine Corps. I was going to be a 27-year-old freshman. I thought, man, that is not going to work for me. So I basically consumed all psychology references I could find. I took every test, ended up getting my bachelor's degree in psychology the same month two I years separated you went through the program, I noticed. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. a, so you got your bachelor's in two years. In two years, because How many credits were you taking a semester? <laughs> I was taking a bunch, but yeah. also at the time they had these uh, tests you could take, like the graduate record exam in psychology, and get some credits for that. So I just cobbled together everything I could, and everybody else would hit the bars, and I'd hit the books, and yeah. just I tried yeah. to catch up with life. That's something I've noticed, even like in the world of back to hospitality in the restaurant industry, the people who go to culinary school who wait until like their mid twenties. Mm always graduate the top of their class. And I think that, you know, like I kind of go back and forth sometimes like is hospital or is, you know, culinary school or hospitality school necessary if you want to be successful in the industry. I don't think so. But if you do go back later in life, it opens up so many doors. And that's the one thing I've noticed is that you just like, because you work so much harder and you get so much out of that experience. I really don't think young people should go to school. <laughs> like until it, It's like, almost you know, that way. Yeah, in some man. cases, if they're not ready for it, like you said, and, and I found that after military service, school became so much easier. 
because yeah. the discipline is there, the the commitment is there, right. the, the want to, all that stuff. It, it right. just became like like a, a piece of cake. So you picked up these two books. What were the titles again? One was In Search of Excellence, okay. which was uh, all about business, and the other was just a general psychology book that any college freshman would get and probably ignore. But, take us, uh, yeah, take us back to that. Like, what clicked in you? What, what like, how, like, really, t- like, what was, like, your intentionality at this point forward? I think there was something just about the titles, because I could have picked any book I wanted on those shelves. You know, there was a pretty well-stocked library on this uh, Gator Freighter, as they call it. And at the same time, there was something about it. In the case of Search of Excellence, I was like, excellence is what I was all about at the time and, and still am. But it was like, what is it that separates companies in that case of that book, the, the good ones from the others? These were two McKinsey consultants who had basically looked and studied and wrote up their findings. And I'm like, it's almost like decoding what right. makes companies successful. That was really intriguing to me. So what was the, what was the big takeaway from this book? Like, they came up with a, a model called the 7S model, which is all about the hard S's. Things like skills would be like a soft S, and then strategy could be like a hard S. And it was just a way of developing a framework based on their investigation of successful companies. And to me, that sort of decoder ring in their case, and it, it applies and shows up in, in uh, many other chapters of my life later right. on. This, this kind of feels familiar with the work that I'm doing and you're doing with your own podcast of studying successful people. Right. One of the biggest things I like to say is one of the biggest lessons I learned is behind every great restaurant's a great person. Mm. And it really starts with an amazing leader. And if you want to become an amazing restaurant owner, it becomes with, you know, leading oneself. And that's exactly how you start in your book. I don't want to get too far ahead. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, so so what was what was your intentionality like at this point after? Like, what were you trying to figure out with focusing on psychology? Why psychology? I think it was really a key to me to unlock sort of the the potential. I've yeah. always been about like trying to realize our full potential. I want to help others realize their potential. It, everything passes through the mind. I knew that from the very beginning. So we started to look at ways that uh, people either get derailed or maybe they could hone their mind a bit to have uh, higher levels of discipline or self-regulation or they could show up more uh, socially or be more assertive. All these things were fascinating to me that by studying and applying the lessons that scientists have discovered about psychology, we could actually change the conditions of our life. I found that very yeah, interesting. It's yeah. such an, an exciting time we live in right now. Um, we're learning more and more about human behavior, psychology, anthropology, just like evolu- evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology. Where did we come from? How did we get here? We're reverse engineering everything right now. And when the more we learn about how the machine works, like it's like driving in a car is the analogy I use. You know, you're driving down the street, you hear a clinking noise. You, if you don't know how that engine works, you're going to have anxiety. You're going to be fearful. You're not, you're not going to know what to do. But once you figure out how the engine works, you hear the clinking noise, you know exactly what that is. Right. You know, and you're like, that's okay. I'll be fine. The same's true with your brain. You're, you're feeling this anxiety and like you don't, you're full of fear and emotion. When you don't know how the brain works, you just ride that wave of emotion and fear. But once you figure out that you are not your thoughts, you know, and you talk about that in the book, you can literally stop in your tracks and go, this is this is just my that clinking noise, those fear in my head. I don't need to worry about that. Like I can override it. I can fix it. I know how this machine in my, between my ears, like you say, works. It's so powerful. It is powerful. And I think what, psychology is a relatively young science, and it's a social science, of course. But now what we've seen with the technology advancements of functional MRI machines, we're understanding the mapping of the brain and the chemistry and its functioning under given scenarios and tying that back to things that psychologists have studied for a long time. So I, I agree with you. It's an amazing yeah. time to be alive. Yeah, and we're also like going back when you're talking like anthropology. Anthropo- well, I can't talk today. Mm-hmm. Anthropology, and you look at like how we coexisted tens of thousands of years ago and and the more we're learning about how we exist today 
I think it's all about reverse engineering and trying to recreate where we came from and, and try to recreate the, that ecosystem of relationships that we're, we're hardwired and we evolved to thrive in. What are your thoughts on that? I think you're exactly right. Now, I had a chance to go visit my youngest daughter. She was uh, studying abroad over in Ireland, and I went to a site where it was 6,000 years old. It was this burial site, and they had constructed it so that the sun on a given day would hit the light. Just right. I'm like, oh my gosh, 6,000 years ago. They're engineering these things, and they're experiencing the same sort of trials and tribulations and hardships, and there's about family, and they talked about the whole thing. And I'm like, in many ways, obviously, life today is unrecognizable compared to that long ago, but there was a lot of similarities too. The basic human condition is, is has not changed. What is the basic human condition from think, what you understand? Yeah, I think from what I understand, it's this uh, this um, ego drive. You know, the fact is that we are born into a world where we're programmed by fear and survival mechanisms, and sometimes those things can run amok and, and take us into places to experience things and to treat one another in ways that are just not positive. And I think that um, there's a, an evolutionary bent to that, but I think a lack of mindfulness and a uh, some of the not understanding of the psychology and not being as artful as we could be in response to some of what we naturally experience and some of the delusion that uh, presents itself to us. I think that's what causes a, a lot more strain than it yeah. needs to. Yeah. I think I, I, I meant to give a little more context when we got started, but I'm not going to lie. I was so excited to get into it. And I know we have so much unpackaged. So predictive index is how you came on my radar. Mm-hmm. Uh, long story short, I had heard of predictive index a couple times through conversations. And then most recently uh, between Al Lucas and Greg Root, the name of their restaurant group is escaping my mind, but out of uh, Philadelphia, they referred to me, Ed Doherty, who is a predictive index. What's the specific title? A partner. Had, partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... I had Ed on the show and he just got deep into self-awareness and, uh, you know, going through these exercises to figure out who you are better, the, which is the, the predictive index personality, uh, assessment. Mm-hmm. I was told not to call it a test <laughs> and if we're not calling it a test, but it's an assessment. Um, we got into that. He told me more about it and, and the more I go, got into it, I was like, this is like, this is a huge clue. You know, and the way Restaurant Unstoppable is going right now is I really want to take a more journalistic approach and to use the interview as my research, mm-hmm. right? And nice. to follow up. So that's why we're here today. If you're wondering why I'm talking to some psychiatrist or psychologist <laughs> um, and some author on, you know, uh, just learning about the mind and all this stuff, expand the circle and leadership. I mean, leadership is universal, let's be honest, yep. right? Um, so that's kind of the context of, as to why I'm sitting across the table to you today. So we're hoping to, to kind of unpackage your book. Um, and once we, or actually we want to unpackage pr- predictive index first and yeah, then definitely. come to your books, but I don't want to get too far ahead. So that's what you can expect in the next hour and a half of our conversation. Uh, so in, in your timeline, you were in the military, you got out of the military in 1996, you went to school to study psychology. Uh, you spent two years at Boston university, uh, where you got your PhD. I don't no, know if that came. No, actually. No. So what happened was when I was getting out of the service, I thought I wanted to be a neuroradiologist. Whoa. I was so interested in, <laughs> in the brain and I figured of it like uh, the scans and all this kind of stuff. But when I started to look, I had this, uh, my bride was, we had been married for about a year and a half and we knew we wanted to start a family someday. And I was looking at what it would take to go through medical school and residency and fellowship. And I thought, it's going to be 12 years before I make yeah. any money. I can't be doing that. So then I fell back and said, well, what else do I love in my life? And I said, you know, business and technology is interesting to me. 
me. So when I went to Boston University, I had gotten accepted into the program right uh, before I got school. out. Right. And it was business school. Yeah. I got my MBA there and I got a second master's in, in uh, information systems That's at right. the time. That's right. Yeah. And then from there, where'd you, where'd you end up? So then I went to a software company here in Boston and I got my first leadership assignment as far as being in the uh, project management role and, and product management and these types of things. And I started using my military techniques because I thought I knew all about leadership. And boy, they did not translate, Eric. It Why was not? Nothing <laughs> well, there's a couple things I took for granted and, and just didn't appreciate at the time. One is around mission. So like when you're in the military, you have different people who have different motivation levels, but everybody is aware that they're in service of the nation. And they're trying to you know, protect the security of, of the country. So that's a pretty lofty mission. And most organizations don't have that you know, to, to say that their um, you know, employees are, are pursuing that mission. So I kind of just – that was one thing that I didn't realize we had to work harder to sort of make sure our team charter, our, our uh, overall organization mission was really clear for people. That was one example. The other is when you start to be direct with people and start to just be like, of course, you know, let's just bark out the orders and the mission will get done that way. It doesn't work quite as well with civilians. And, and one thing that I realized in the military, in the Marine Corps specifically, they would talk about the two priorities, mission accomplishment, troop welfare, in that order. You will accomplish the mission. If you get troop welfare, that's nice. You know, but that's, that's negotiable. The first one is not negotiable. When you go into the civilian world, if you act that way, people will not follow you because no. it's just not the same, right? Yeah. It's not the same deal. So now I like to say that it's about mission accomplishment, troop welfare, equivalent, you know, employee welfare, in equal measure and, and in alignment. Do you think the military is ever going to change? I don't think it needs to change because yeah. I think the reality of their job is very different than ours as civilians. So I don't think that it has to change. The military is absolutely changing, however. You know, in far, as far as um, even my beloved Marine Corps is absolutely More modifying working. itself. They have a paper they call the Talent Review or something like that, 2035. And they're talking about how they must evolve in terms of human-centric, people-centric to be able to remain a force in readiness. They're extending paternity leave. They're doing lots of things that were unheard of in my day because the youngest generation of warriors, they're just not going to put up with the old style. It's always been constantly evolving. And I mean, at the end of the day, people still have a choice to join the military or choose the route of civilian. Oh, that's right. So like, if you want to attract onto yourself the talent, you need to you know, you kind of need to match what the the world is doing, right? Yeah, and that kind of brings me to where I was at that software company. So here I was successfully translating my military experience. I was learning how to be an individual contributor and a civilian. One of the things that stood out to me immediately is I still referred to myself as a leader. I had no direct reports, but nobody was going to tell me I wasn't a leader because mm-hmm. what I had already been through, it was ingrained in me. I enjoyed it. I was just leading myself mm-hmm. and I was leading my projects and I had an indirect leadership style, but never tell me I'm not a leader, even if I have no direct reports. And uh, Were you a sergeant? Was that your title? I was a sergeant yeah. when I got out. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Six years in, yeah. I was I got out as a sergeant. And and I think that was a real blessing for me because today I talk to leaders and, and they don't even like that term. It's like such a charged term. Like, oh, I'm, I'm not a leader. You know, I manage people, but I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a leader. Yeah. One time I had a chance to give a talk and I had said, if you consider yourself an extremely capable leader, please stand up. hundred people in the room. How many think stood up? The answer is zero. Yeah. I was yeah. going to say. Uh, wait a second. Why not? An extremely capable leader. We're capable of leadership, right? Right. And uh, at the same time, they're sitting there thinking, if I, am I going to stand up? My boss isn't standing up. Should I stand up? The guy next to me is not standing up. I'm not going to stand up. And you're like, wait a second, time out. What is happening here? Right. Yeah. Why is it so important that people make that shift and recognize that they are leaders? 
I think that it's really important for them to have that mindset because that's how they're going to show up. Mm. You know, and, and everyone has to come up with their own definition of what leadership is. There's no generally accepted way of saying stamp you as a leader. It's not about title and it's not about intention only. It's about lots of things. And, and I think that having that mindset is, is the best way that we can serve ourselves and one another in the mission. Right. And um, I think, the, and you point this out in your book, Expand the Circle, that, you know, really at the end of the day, like we are all leaders and the, the leadership starts with ourselves. Yep. And until you accept that you need to lead yourself and that you won't grow until you have that self-discipline to become better, to challenge yourself to grow to get out of your fears and your anxieties and override those things you know and show up every day like you will never grow to that that point where you need to be to to own a business or whatever your goals are so yeah and what i didn't realize at the time so while i was having some success certainly with my self-identity as a leader the reality is that once i became a manager i struggled again because of something that i had forgotten about human psychology Mm. and so what happened was i had a chance to make a hire I hired a woman who uh, took a role as a, a quality assurance person, and it just absolutely was clear it wasn't working out. And so we had to go in a different direction. And so I'm sitting in the office. I'm, I'm breaking this news to her, and she's devastated, of course, because you know we're, we're parting ways. I'm devastated, too, because this was my decision to bring her in, and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And so that's where I really started to recognize, like, we have to understand people and their fit to the role. And I didn't have any tools or background in how to do that. And thankfully, this was the time that my organization, the software company I was working for at the time, took on to the predictive index. And so when they started to bring in assessments and start to help us break down, here's what the job is really asking for, and here's what this person's natural capabilities really are, I could have saved both of us so much heartache. Right, yeah. right. And you kind of reminded me of, of something that I learned with uh, EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating yeah. System. I don't know. Are you mm-hmm. familiar with Traction? Yeah, EOS? absolutely. Yeah. So they talk about in, in, the, in the, the book Traction, get it, want it, and have the capacity to do it. Mm-hmm. And you, you also bring this up in your book, too. And, uh, and uh, I mean, why is how does the the predictive index help with that. Yeah, the predictive index was created in 1955, and it was from 1955. Holy, can cow, you imagine? I didn't that, realize that, it was that. Right. Yeah, that yeah. long ago. Yeah. And really, it was the the founder Arnold Daniels when he created this instrument. He had had military service as well. He served in the U.S. Army Air Corps, and he was a bombardier. And so, it, when he started to look at why are some people successful in the role and some aren't, it came down to psychology. And so, what the the basis of the predictive index is that there are certain traits that we have, certain drives that we experience. And that creates these motivating needs inside of us. And that's going to make our behavior predictable. So it became a predictive index because all things being equal, if you know someone's drives, you'll know exactly how they're going to behave. Right. So it breaks down because it's a workforce assessment. We can do this with just four dimensions. So I won't go into too much of the detail. But when you think about dominance, like I need to get my fingerprint on things. I want to smash through walls and, and put up results like these, these things are important. Or extroversion. I like to work with and through other people to accomplish results. Or patience. I like to make sure that people's social needs are being met by my organization. Or formality, which is I want to have this disciplined approach of getting things right. I want the, the rules to be followed. Four basic drives. And in combination, they tell you lots of powerful things. So in this example, what I needed was somebody who was more of a driving force, but the individual, and, and all, all people are fine, it's just that you have to fit them to the right role, I overlooked and, and misplaced my hire into a position where she couldn't be successful. And that was on me mm. as a manager, right? Why is it so important for you? What you just did, why, right there, you owned it, mm. right? Why is that so important? 
Yeah, I think accountability is just, uh, there's just no other way. Every change that you want to see and every sort of performance you want has to begin with yourself. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that this is the biggest challenge that I see for leaders. One is how do you exercise that sort of extreme accountability and really uh, take responsibility, but at the same time, embrace the level of selflessness that it's not about you. It's hard to hold those two things in balance, but that's essential in my opinion as a leader. Yeah. I think you talk about that towards the end of the book, this idea yeah. of, I can't remember what exactly the, the chapter was or how you, you talked about it, but it, yeah, 100%. Like it's, it's, it's about that selflessness. That is what enlightenment is, that it's greater than me, right? Yes. That the, it's not just about me and my individuality, but it's about the collective. We're all connected. Um, I mean, again, we're going to talk about the book later. I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves, but uh, we're, so in the timeline, you're working for this, this, uh, this tech company, right? That's right. Um, we still have to talk about how you left the tech company uh, and you went on to start your own company, you sold your company, mm -hmm. and then you found yourself back at Predictive Index, right? Yeah, so while I was still at the software company, when we took on Predictive Index, it was primarily because we were having trouble with our sales professionals, trying to get the right ones hired, make sure they were at quota, that they would stick around. So the Predictive Index was brought into that company in 2007. That was my first real exposure to the instrument. And I became, back in the day, what was known as an analyst. So I went through the training, and I was able to help interpret the results and help provide coaching to people around our company. And I was like, this stuff is great. Because with my psychology background and now my practical lived experience of having screwed up a hire and lots of other things, I was like, this is an amazing tool to be able to do so many things better in terms of relationships, in terms of team construction, certainly hiring decisions, those types of things. So that's where my exposure to the Predictive Index became very practical for me because I was a customer. I was a user right. of the, of the you tool. saw the effect. Absolutely. Yeah. And I can... I can now say that I've gone through the behavioral analysis and yeah. holy cow, the <laughs> level of uh, like you have, you know, thoughts about yourself. And after taking that test and when, you know, when it reinforces, so I'm a, um, a promoter is my title and we'll probably get more into that later. I'm sure mm -hmm. we'll start talking about the predictive index, but it's just so eye opening. It's it talk, and like self-awareness is at the peak of emotional intelligence, right? Yeah. They say that to, to have true emotional intelligence, like the, the very pinnacle of, of emotional intelligence is that self-awareness, uh, but it also gives you awareness of the people that are around you. It's so powerful. And this is a teaser of what we're going to get into, but why did you end up leaving this tech company? So the company was purchased in 2011 by okay. a big major 1970s based mainframe software company. So it is this classic. We see this all the time in the corporate world. A very successful, nimble, uh, kind of energetic software company out of Boston gets acquired by a big monolithic bureaucratic company. In this case, it was based out of Detroit. And it destroyed millions and millions of dollars of value because all the best people weren't going to stick around and put up with that. I'll give you a, a, a ridiculous anecdote. We got an email one day, and it said they'd been monitoring the level of milk consumption in the company. And they suspected that we were using milk for our cereal when it was only approved for coffee. Oh my and I thought, whoever wrote this email does not realize that they just pushed dozens of great people out of the company. And this would have been like early, late 2010s? Yeah, yeah, late 2010 and 2011, right in there. Yeah, yeah that's around the time where I think the, the focus went from being like we realized that it's all about system, process, procedure, bottom line driven performance, right? And we got so far in that direction that we forgot what it means to be human. 
You know, yeah. now you're starting to see that the pendulum is starting to swing back the other way. And hopefully this, this pendulum, the sucker settles in the middle someplace. <laughs> I think we're in the process of that, that thing is starting to settle. And we're starting to find that balance of like, where's the sweet spot between performance and happiness. Yeah. And when you fast forward to where I am now as a talent optimization consultant, I get to work with extremely large companies and small companies everywhere in between. What I didn't realize at the time was that big companies tend to dehumanize the work. You start to say, well, did you hear what accounting did? Well, it's not even a person at that point. It's just an entire vague function that did something. And, right. you know, functions don't do anything. People do yeah. stuff. And so that's one thing is that when the work dehumanize, is dehumanized, then all of a sudden we have to, as leaders, figure out how do we rehumanize the work. And yeah. that means being human ourselves. Is it just a numbers thing? Do you think Dunbar's number comes into this where it's just like a, a critical number where we stop seeing individuals and start seeing a collective and – I think it's a big part of it. Yeah. And I, and I think any sort of big change initiatives or certain things that really make it easier for us to step away. I see it in healthcare all the time, right? You're yeah. like, oh, I got to go check on that spleen down the hall. You're like, well, there's more than a spleen down there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, right. But I mean, if, if, for those of you who aren't familiar with Dunbar's number, I mentioned them a lot in the show, but it's this idea that we can only handle so many relationships. And for humans, it's about 150 relationships. And I'm, I'm wondering if like that sweet spot, we're talking about this, this pendulum has, isn't just about focusing on the bottom line, but also like, how do we create an ecosystem, like a tribe of people, mm -hmm. right? Where you only have so many points of contact so you can manage your relationships in a way that is humanizing because we're moving, we, we, we were moving in this direction, like the, the Starbucks of the world. And I'm not trying to beat up too bad on Starbucks. They've done a lot of great things, but we're like, what's like, is that the future where we're all just trying to have these like giant thousand location restaurants? Or should we try to take what those big organizations do really well and try to recreate them on a smaller scale? Mm. Like that's the future I want to see where we have t like big or small or like smaller size companies, maybe 20 locations, right? Acting like a Starbucks, you mm -hmm. know, in the sense of systems, processes, procedures, but have that human element. And I think there's a, about, I think the amount of people that are involved plays really big into that. What are your thoughts on that? I think that it does play a big role into it, but I'll tell you, this is a cautionary tale as well. I went to Phoenix one time and I sat down for brunch and I was having a lovely time. And when the waitress brought the check, I was like, okay, I'm going to ask a question. I always love to ask, what's your favorite part about your job? And she's like, oh, so many things. This place is amazing. I said, well, that's really unusual for me to hear that from waitstaff. She goes, oh, me and the other girls have been here for a long time. It's really unusual. A lot of times in this line of work, we move around. I said, well, what is it that makes you stay? She said, well, the owners here are so great. It doesn't feel corporate like other mm -hmm. jobs in town. And I thought, man, can you imagine that? That even small chains or even single places sometimes feel corporate. Why? Because traction because of EOS, because we're trying to systematize everything we can. It's very tempting to look at the technical and operational bits of a restaurant or any other business and, and try to efficient make everything efficient and as profitable as possible and overlook the people part. Right. So when I was, we were just having this conversation right now, and I'm thinking, what is it like if you have a successful restaurant owner and you expand out to now two locations, 10 locations, at what point do you start looking at spreadsheets and numbers and trends and things where you, it's hard to know every individual in the right. organization and start to not think systems wise. Right. That's where the risk of dehumanization sets in. And this wait, this waitress experienced that. And she's like, no, these owners aren't like that. Yeah. And I can't wait. We're, I'm, I'm sure eventually we're going to get to the point. How do we do that? Right. Or mm -hmm. should we, do you want to get into a little bit of that now? Like how do we, yeah, sure. So, I mean, in your book, expand the circle, it's all about rippling out from, it starts with inner and then it goes to your, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it's with yourself and then it's with your direct reports, your team, right? It was one and other your person. Organization, yep. mm -hmm. and then yep. your community. 
right? Mm-hmm. And then the world. Is that the order? Yeah. So we go, uh, yeah, from leading yourself, and then you could lead with one other person, which could be could be your boss, but yeah. it certainly could be a peer, could be a direct report. Then your team, because the team now takes on more complexity. The entire organization, which is a, a business entity, right? And then into the world. You're yeah. exactly right. So one of the things I kind of, my earlier, like say between uh, episode one and episode 500, right? <laughs> I, I was thinking to myself, like really like behind every great restaurant is a great person. Mm-hmm. That person lifts up and recreates themselves and others, right? And then it ripples out. But you get to this point where that great person can no longer influence because there's more people than that person can touch, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the, the quality of the culture, that person gets diluted because they can't, it becomes too much for them to be able to influence everybody. Right. Is that what's happening? It can happen. Yeah. I think if we Is don't, deeper than if, that? if we don't figure out how to institutionalize that, that person and, and really start to uh, embed them in the fabric of the business, then those people who are a step removed or two steps removed are not natural uh, ambassadors or they're not carrying on that same whether it's corporate values yeah. whether it's an approach whether it's a technique like that's that's what keeps that alive and, and gives that place that that kind of a feel and we embed that through things like vision core values 100%. mission and that's why we do this stuff because you need to it can't just if you're not there to tell everybody this every day you have to commit it to writing you have to be able to to let that have legs and I'll go back to the same restaurant that I was as I was walking out after I had paid for the bill. I saw someone taking pictures of food, and I'm like, "Oh, what are you doing? You're, you're taking some pictures." They go, "Yeah, we're updating the menu, and I'm doing their social media, and I'm taking some pictures for the new menu on the on the website." I said, "Great, you know, I, I heard great things about the owners. Oh, they're fabulous. Here's the, a person who's not even. This is now a contractor, right? Mm-hmm. Who's been uh, hired the organization? This. Do you feel? I wish I, no, I would. I wish I could remember, but I don't know. It's just a brunch place. And yeah. It was a lovely time." And I said, what is it that makes these owners so great? I haven't had a chance to meet them yet. I said, they just, they care so much. Mm. They just ask, they take an active interest in all the way steps live. They're very transparent with the operation of the business. So it's like they brought in the human element, basically. Mm-hmm. So even with, with a freelancer who's there taking pictures, had a very similar experience to the waitress who was like, I'd have been out of here a long time ago if it wasn't, if it was corporate, but it's not. And me and the other girls are still here. So it was, it was really, I never got to meet the owners, <laughs> but it's like, they were they were uh, putting that into everything in their business. There was just this trickle down beneficial effect. The customers were feeling it, obviously, you know, and I'm sure it showed up in their profits as well. Matt, I'm loving these little rabbit holes we keep getting into. <laughs> uh, but, but to come back to centerline to your storyline, uh, why? So you started your own business in 2000. I think I have written down here, 2011. Uh, co. Covocative, yeah. Covocative. What is what was covocative? Yeah, so when I did my PhD, which happened, and I got uh, finished up in 2011, the same time that I had separated from that that last uh, software company after it got purchased, I had done some research because I fell in love with coaching. Coaching is an amazing practice. It's all about having somebody who's kind of your 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 collaborator, if you will, who owns the process while helping you realize your own obstacles and, and, and get them removed. The problem with coaching is that it doesn't scale very well. So my PhD research was all about, can we use technology to make coaching scale better? Mm. And it was very compelling, the results. I found that can it was, you? yeah, the, the short answer is yes. When you have a, a, a thoughtful coach who's using a combination of either online techniques or video or whatever it might be, we can produce the same effects at distance that we can find in traditionally face-to-face or telephone-based coaching. That was the whole crux of the thing. I was so encouraged by the results. I said, I'm going to build a sales coaching platform because that's what I kind of knew from before. 
and make a go of it. And I had such a hard time getting it properly funded that I ended up selling it off and before it could really sort of become its own entity. I know how hard it is to get something properly funded. <laughs> yeah, and, and what I didn't know yeah. is how much I disliked the fundraising process. So here I was thinking, oh, I'm going to be a CEO of a software company. I love software. I love helping people. This is going to be natural. My intentions were great, but it, a combination of the execution, but also the fit for me personally. I learned so much that that wasn't exactly what I enjoyed. Big parts of that, uh, you know, I just didn't love. So I found myself in this situation where I said, I need to go and, and find you know, a full-time employment. I had three young kids at home, and I was coming off of this uh, sort of a, a pivot, I'll call it, uh, in terms of the, the startup itself. And a friend of mine said, hey, you should come and write a white paper for our CEO. She works at the Predictive Index. I said, oh, I know the Predictive Index yeah. and PI really well. So I went in and, and, and spoke to the CEO. Her name's Nancy. And we were just thickest thieves from the very beginning. And she's like, I want you to come work here. And I said, okay. And that was in 2013. So okay. it's been 10 years. So you you had your side hustle, the yep. startup, mm-hmm. and you're working for predict, Predictive Index at the same time. No, no. I, I ended the, the software did, company. Did you sell it? I thought you sold it. Yeah, we sold it off okay. uh, a little bit later. I had decided to kind of park it and shut it down a little bit. And then I took the job at PI and eventually found a buyer for the for the code base and, and sold that off. So yeah. yeah, that's the way that worked. But once I had a chance to come into PI... The family who uh, the, the Daniels family I mentioned Arnold Daniels earlier still own the company, and so there was it was a kind of a sleepy, uh, you know it had a lot of uh, potential in it, but it was kind of uh, stilted in some ways. It was constrained by history and a lot of different factors, and so that was in in 2013. So I'm I'm kind of curious. Uh, what was this? You called it a white paper. What what did you write? For predictive yeah, it was all about strategic workforce planning, okay. and it was just a, a just a, a piece that was all about how to do it the right way. And uh, got a chance to interview the CEO and some other experts, and just kind of wrote that up as just kind of a, a gig, just while I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next with my life, and didn't realize like this always happens, where I didn't realize I was meeting somebody and and going to step onto a path that here we are ten years later, and, right? Yeah, you know, I think that's a, known. a good spot to take our first break to thank our sponsors, and we'll come back to kind of dive deeper into predictive index. I know we gave us a little bit of history, but maybe we can get more of that history and, and where you guys are today and the work you're doing, how it works. And then obviously we still got to talk about expand the circle. So I'm excited about that. Restaurant Unstoppable is partnering with CORE, Children of Restaurant Employees. CORE, Children of Restaurant Employees, invites you to learn more about their mission and their fall campaign, Serving Up Hope. CORE is an industry-focused nonprofit that provides financial grants to restaurant employees with children who face a life-altering medical crisis or natural disaster. Serving Up Hope is a national fundraising campaign and an opportunity for the restaurant industry to come together to serve those who will serve us daily. There is complete flexibility for when and how you raise money and CORE has ideas to help. Whether you choose to make a flat donation or fundraise through in-store promotions, CORE provides turnkey resources to make your partnership as simple and successful as possible. It does not stop there. Brands who commit to raising $15,000 or more for CORE during this campaign receive logo recognition on the Wall of Hope, a nationally promoted landing page that highlights the companies that have chosen to come together for our industry. Choose to participate and you will help build a culture of caring and demonstrate your support. 
support for employees and those that qualify for a grant across the country. More than 70% of core grantees are single mothers and they critically need your help to continue to provide funds. So why wait? Showcase your commitment and leadership to help employees in our industry and sign up for the Serving Up Hope campaign today. Visit coregives.org to learn more. Together, we can serve up hope for restaurant families this fall. All right, we're back. Um, so you, you already told us PI was founded in 1955. That's right. What's the history of PI? Yeah, so from 1955 until I got there in 2013, it was this constant growth, you know, slow growth, but constant growth. And from the very beginning, PI has sold exclusively through partners. So what that means is that we found people around the world who are as fascinated by the science and its applications as we were, and they represent the predictive index to their local clients. So whether it was in South Africa or Europe or other parts of the United States, uh, Arnold, the founder of the company, found others who were interested in making business perform better and helping people have better work experiences all through the benefits of data and analytics. So how has PI evolved? And going forward, I'm going to refer to predictive index as PI. It's just a little easier to roll yeah, off right. the tongue. Um, how has PI evolved? Because I know the science has evolved since 1955. So has PI evolved to reflect that science? Yeah, it's interesting. Like when we first started to put out the assessments, they were designed specifically on eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper so they would fit in a filing cabinet <laughs> because you would take people's results and you would have to hand score them mm -hmm. and you would use tools that the predictive index would, would provide and you would start to say, oh, okay, you know, Eric's a promoter. That's great. Let me just file that in the old uh, filing cabinet back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And later on, when uh, computers started to happen, there were floppy disks and some desktop programs to automate some of that a little bit, but it was pretty basic. By the time the 2000s came was the first time that PI built a website where people could take the survey online, they'd be able to get results and reports online, and that really changed the relationship with the partners and the clients and everything exploded. Yeah. So today we do more than 3 million assessments a year. Holy you you couldn't do that otherwise, right? And um, so, so then now all of a sudden new possibilities became as well, which is you could develop new types of reports. So team-based tools or compared to job tools and things that would make it so much easier to interpret. And that's kind of about the time when I came into the organization uh, to lead product for them, which was saying like – there's some innovation that needs to happen here. And that was music to my ears. Right. But has the science itself changed? Because you mentioned earlier, the whole idea behind PI was to be able to to understand this person, right, who you, who's doing the assessment so you can you know, put them in the right place. So right. you can uh, know what their, I think you said, know what their motives are or mm -hmm. drive. Is that their the drives that the create those motivating needs? So that was yeah. like the core of how it started. Like yeah. trying to figure out like what, if I know what, what, what motivates this person, what their drive is, I can feed into that. Yep. Um, are you able to talk about how that works? Is it? Sure. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And, and that's, that part is unchanged. The same factors that Arnold developed back in 1955 are the same ones that are in play today. The, and the science and the nature of scientific techniques have evolved. So we've used more modern ways to make sure that it's valid, make sure that it's reliable, make sure that fairness standards are upheld. All these things have evolved, but the core construct of the instrument and its original four factors are still very much the same. Okay. So when you talk about what is the, the, the scientific technique, how has that evolved? I'm curious. How, how, is, how has this improved over time? 
Yeah, I think that in terms of the nature of the way that the accuracy has gotten better and these sorts of things. But if you go back to, as an example, let's talk about just the very first factor we talk about is dominance. So what that means is that within any given population, there's a certain amount of dominance that an individual might have. And so when we take a collection of people and say, do you have above average dominance? Do you have below average dominance? That becomes important to us. And so when we start looking at all those factors, like I'll take myself as an example, I have an average level of dominance. If you need me to be in charge, I love it. If you don't need to be in charge, that's fine too. What is so your what situation? Was, what is your? Uh, so I'm a persuader. A persuader. Known as a persuader. Yeah. And in in PI terms, the classic science terms, you'd say that I'm a mid A persuader, meaning I'm mid level dominance, but still a persuader pattern is kind of the modifier that goes on that. So all that means is that if you took people like me, you'd say half the people would have more dominance than me, and half the people would have less dominance than me. I'm right in the middle. Yeah. But go to the next factor, which is extroversion, the willingness to work with and through other people to get results done. I am really high in terms of dominance, 95th percentile. So that means like you're not going to find very many more people who are more interested in working with others than I am compared to other people who are like me. So what that means is predictably you can tell that if there's a job to be done, I'm going to prefer to work with people to do it. If you put me in a cubicle all day and tell me to do work by myself, I would be miserable. (laughs) Well, even think about the restaurant. So I would want to be front of house for sure, you know, and as opposed to doing something like, um, you know, working by myself, uh, that would not be a good fit. So I'm a promoter is what I discovered through taking the test, which I feel like is so appropriate as a a restaurant or as a podcaster going out and learning and discovering and promoting what I'm discovering. I feel like it's like, I just like, wow, I was like, what are the odds? And I was brutally honest with myself when I was taking that test. Cause I, I really wanted to get an accurate result. Um, so for me, like I am right down the middle of almost everything. Mm-hmm. Like I split, like that's kind of what the promoter is. It's like, it's middle everything. And I love working with people, but I'm very selective with who I like to work with. Right. Like I love people. The ones I like. <laughs> right, right. What does I mean? I don't know if you want to reflect on that. Yeah. So when you talk about being toward the middle, that just means situational. Kind yeah. of like my own. My only one that's close to the middle is that dominance factor where situationally I'm, I could take it or leave it, right? Yeah. But uh, in the case of people who are very wide, the opposite of, of that factor for me or for your, perhaps your entire pattern, right. those people are very pronounced. And I'm sure that what you'd find if we did the studies is that your restaurant owners are going to be very domineering, wide type, venturesome people if they're starting up a brand new restaurant. Restaurant. It tends right. to tends to be what we see. Right. Uh, so that's. But it just means that situationally, like you said, if you need to have detail work, you're like, sure, I can do some of that. I don't want to exclusively do that. Well, you know, same is true with with people. So I don't think we've really gone into like uh, the big picture of what PI is yet. Really, with how there's like different quadrants and the kind of it, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah break mm-hmm. down like like how that works. Yeah. So let's say chronologically for a second. So when I first joined the company, there was basically the ability to measure people and say, what are your drives and how do those show up in terms of your preferences? Great. We could measure jobs and say, how do you uh, fit to a given role? So you'd be good for this job and not that job. That was about it. That was the extent of the science when I when I joined the company. When um, over the years, what happened was we acquired a cognitive assessment. So now the ability to learn at speed to the extent that's important in roles, you know, that type of learn cognitive at speed. What do you mean? Meaning that your cognitive ability in terms of the agility of with which you can learn uh, how, how long it takes to learn new things. So those, those types of things can become important in certain job roles. So we added that. But the one that I'm most interested in these days is we had to create new science for looking at entire teams. 
So two two aspects of that. One is what are we ask what do we, what do we ask teams to do? What's the team's charter? And that's where you mentioned quadrants. We tend to find that the world of work is broken down into four major buckets, and you can start to think about uh, what we call innovation and agility. So there's types of work that's very uh, venturesome and unknown, really important. Another would be teamwork and employee experience. How do we make sure everyone's having a good time at work and having good social relations? What about process and precision? So making sure things get done, shipped on time accurately. And then finally, results and discipline, things that are about how do we uh, grow more customer share? How do we operate with analytics? These types of things. So when we find that the world of work is broken into those four areas, that means the work we ask teams to do comprises one of those four things. Team configurations themselves can span across one or more of those quadrants too. And this is all done the way that I, I mean, I, I'm hesitant to get into how the assessment works because I know that you guys kind of don't like people to make assumptions about what, what's going to happen. Is it cool if I talk about my experience? Yeah, absolutely. So it's more easy. Like this sounds very complex. Like you'd be <laughs> spending hours in like, you know, taking these tests and doing all this stuff. It literally takes six minutes. Right. Is the process today the same process it was then, and, and and you're able to do all these additional things? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, so so, so I'm it, kind of like at a loss of how that's possible. Yeah, so when you sit down to take the the survey, it just simply asks you which of the following do you believe are uh, expressions of what accurately reflects who you are, and you're yeah. like, you, you'll see an item like helpful. Am I helpful? Yeah, I'm helpful. Okay, and you you what we say is you endorse that item, yeah. right? So a combination of doing that over the course of many many different um, inputs all of a sudden tells us the the psychology behind your traits and, and what it is that, you know, who you are. And, and that's why it only takes six minutes to do right. it, which blows people's minds to think, how do you get this much accuracy out of a six minute assessment? And, and the answer is back to the original science. Well, one thought that I did have is like, I mean, what percentage of people would you say are pretty self-aware? In terms of their personality, extensively high. In terms of other definitions of self-awareness, we might have a different conversation. Yeah, because yeah. I'm thinking to, to take this test and to really get an accurate result, you really have to be pretty self-aware, right? So, you, but you, you're saying that the more more people, as far in terms of their personality, are pretty self-aware. Definitely, I think the the bigger risk and what we say to people is don't overthink it. Yeah, don't try to guess your way into what you're supposed to say. Just let yeah. it let it be natural. I mean, there's this is the thing that we always say too: is all patterns are beautiful. The reality is that there is no right or wrong. It's a personality survey. It's not a, you know it's not a, a right wrong. So people, if they if they show up and basically in uh, respond to the survey items in the most natural way possible, the way that's as authentic and genuine and as self aware as possible, you're going to get a great result. Got it. Because so, you're going to get you. Yeah. So that process has pretty much stayed the same while adding all these layers on top of it. That's right. New layers of analytics, some new items around like what – let's say that we give it to a, a restaurant team, the executive team of a restaurant chain, for example. We'd say, what are you trying to accomplish in the next 12 to 18 months? And they might say, we're going to open up 10 new locations. Well, that's going to say something about the strategy. Or we really need to make sure that we get – you know, uh, you know, st- same store sales equivalent, you know, higher, or we, we've been having too many mistakes with our ordering. We need to really make sure that we order, you know, our food and make sure that our logistics gets better. Okay, great. So those things tell us something about the strategy we might be asking a team to do. Then we can look at a, the collection of individuals asked to do it and say, are they naturally suited to what you're asking them to do? Or do we need to coach them and develop and maybe make some new hires to, to uh, associate them with that, that charter a little bit better? So as you added these new layers, these different quadrants, 
did the the test change just by adding different words that people might associate with? Or? No, that part stayed the same. It was okay. just a way of looking at your natural results. Like as a promoter, most promoters will be in that teamwork and employee experience quadrant. Not exclusively, but most will. And so it was just a new way of, of looking at groups of, of individuals as a collective and as individuals relative to the team's charter. So we, we didn't change the core assessment at all that you're familiar with, the six-minute assessment, but we made it so much more. The utilization of what we can do with the data went up dramatically, especially because what I always say now is that the most important and dangerous form of work is team-based work. Why is that? Because in most organizations, individuals rarely do big, big things by themselves. Instead, it's a combination of people. Like I just used the example of opening up a new restaurant, right? Let's say I've got five, five restaurants and I want to open the sixth. No one person is going to open up a new restaurant. It's going to be a team of people right. working together, everything from site location, surveying, architecture, blueprint, opening day, all that stuff. And so you're thinking about lots and lots of different types of people pursuing different missions. What that means is a collision of competing styles and competing goals. Like, I want everything to look great. Well, I want to open on time. Well, guess what? You're going to see some butting heads there. So this is where the science allows us to understand people's natural drives and their typical behaviors relative to what we're asking the team to do. That means we can negotiate out how to work at our best together. That's huge. Yeah, I'm I'm sure a lot of the people who are listening to this have heard of uh, Jim Collins, Good to Great. He talks about getting the right people on your bus, i.e. culture, you know. But then putting them in the right seat is this This is what you're talking about right now is finding out where does it make sense to put you so you, the work you're doing is going to contribute. So you're not butting heads. Is that safe? To very, say? very true. And okay. it's true at the single person doing a single job level. That's always been true. It'll always be true. But now to be able to see into that at the collective level of a group of people, whether they're in one specific function or whether they're for like like the wait staff or whether they're cross functional. Like how does back of house, front of house all work together along with the executive team for you know a large restaurant chain, whatever it might be? That, that's um, it's helpful to be able to use the science in those ways. Got it. Uh, what haven't we talked about in terms of the science of PI? There was one more piece of science that we added that we uh, uh, moved along the way, which was all about the employee experience. We know, for example, that the way that uh, there's four things that can go bad for a person in a company. I hate my job. I hate my manager. I hate my teammates or I hate this whole freaking place. Like these are the types of things we want to be able to measure into so we can be more prescriptive about where to focus. So, for example, if we give an employee experience survey to a, a large restaurant and we say, you know, here's what we're seeing from the wait staff and here's what we're seeing from the line cooks. And, and let's understand that they're having a different experience at their work, either based on manager or team or something like that. We can be that much more prescriptive about what the successful interventions will be to help make sure everybody's having the highest levels possible performance and experience got it so if if i'm listening to this right now and you you have me shaking my head like i'm really interested in this is some some fascinating stuff like what what is like the process of working with pi look like how does that look yeah the easiest thing to do is just to visit the website and start to either sign up for a free trial or maybe request to speak to somebody to kind of understand what it would look like in your organization in your restaurant whatever i'm a restaurateur asking you what is this hey i've heard about i listened to this podcast and i'm interested in pi what does it look like what is the answer of that going to be yeah, come to the website, get started. We'd love to help you show your own results, understand your own leadership strengths, maybe some other team members, whatever that might be. Or if you have a specific job you're hiring for, we could help you with that too. Just because we want you to understand how the science actually works for something that's going to create value for you to really see it in your context. That's the most important thing. So typically you have whoever the lead is take the test first. And what is, what is the purpose for that? 
Yeah, just so they can understand the specifically how the instrument works and how it can provide tremendous value in terms of what it is that they're trying to accomplish. And yeah. I, I took, like I mentioned, the behavioral assessment and um, holy cow. You know, like it just – when you're trying to figure out where you're going, what you're doing, where it makes sense to focus – and you have an idea about yourself and you have gut feelings and you don't know if that gut feeling is enough to take this test and to have it reinforce your self-awareness and the work you're doing, your strengths, your weaknesses. I just found it so empowering. Like even if you just go to take this for yourself, you know, like even if everybody in your whole team doesn't take it, but if you understand who you are and where you belong and how to compliment yourself to me, like that alone is invaluable. To me, it's a huge starting point, but it also brings me to where, predictive index where we found ourselves in 2018. We found that we had all these tools, but that not all of our clients were taking advantage of the tools the same way. So we created a discipline known as talent optimization. And all that means is that we want to make sure that everyone at work is having an optimal level of performance and experience. So for what that means is that we had to be able to make sure that we know how to design winning teams, how to hire top talent, inspire people to greatness, and really diagnose any of those people problems. So we came up with a whole set of prescriptive tools and, and applications to be able to make those things happen. So when I took the behavioral assessment, I just, I'm just scratching the surface. You're just scratching the surface. And, and the question is in terms of the application. So we have all the data we need from about you, but the question is, for example, on a team, now we'd want to see in the team context. Or let's say that you were going to be promoted to the next job. We'd want to understand how you compare to those job requirements. You know, all these types of things. So yeah. how many different result possibilities are there? Oh, millions. Uh, when you get down to the actual pattern, there's so many different combinations. When you describe, for example, that you're a promoter, I'm a persuader, that's a form of shorthand that we use for like generalizations of certain types of people. There's 17 of those. But in terms of the actual results, it, it's very, very varied. I mean, is it worth getting into the different types of people there are? I think, sure. Why not? I mean, I'm just curious. I really like what, like, I know you sent me the, but like there's 17. Do you have them memorized? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> After 10 years. So when you start looking at different uh, profiles, I'll give you some examples from my own family. So all, right. all my kids are yeah. grown, so they've, they've all taken it. So my youngest daughter's a maverick. That means she's very venturesome, headstrong. Ed Doherty's a maverick. There you go. Yeah. So there's your mavericks. Recent guest on the show. Yeah, mavericks are, are very um, you know, proactive people, very uh, driving forces in, in nature, if you will. Uh, my bride is known as adventurer. So she's very venturesome. She's headstrong as well. She has very low patience, but, uh, you know, these types of things. But she also has a little bit more of that, that rigor and that detail work than, than, uh, than my youngest daughter does. My son is a little bit closer to your profile, and he's known as a collaborator. So he really wants to work with other people. He wants to make sure people's needs are taken care of. Very social guy, both in terms of being outgoing as well as what comes back to him. So those are some examples of the different profiles. There's three. I mean, there's 17. We have to go through all of them because I feel like we would probably be here all day. Uh, but um, tell me more about a promoter. I'm just now. I'm just selfish. Tell me. I, mean, I already know a little bit, but to help the listeners understand who the host of Restaurant Unstoppable is. Yeah, when you think about like social glue, when you think about uh, making sure that uh, you're working with and through other people to accomplish your mission, those kinds of things, that, that is your most dominant trait is being able to say extroversion and, and being able to quickly relate to other people, making sure that um, you're able to to uh, align and to uh, cultivate and rally the support of others collectively working toward a goal. And I think that, you know, so for example, you have a mission. And so when you think about guest outreach and you're trying to find people on the show and make sure their needs are met so that they're having a good time on the show and, and that you produce a high quality podcast, like these things are all classic examples for, for the promoter. What are the weaknesses of a promoter? 
I'd say when you flip to the exact opposite, sometimes when you have to do heads down work, you may not enjoy that as much <laughs> when you're sitting there in the editing room and you're like, I can't this just be over with so I yeah. can go back and talk to people again, which I love. Yeah. You know, th- there's a low patience for that. I think that in promoters too, what sometimes if you need high rules, like highly repetitive uh, procedures are not as much fun for promoters. Yeah. High levels, the this highest levels of quality. This is why I hate social media. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so those are some of the things. That, and, and they're just, again – just things to be aware of, right? Yeah. We Sometimes we can coach ourselves to stretch. No people are f- completely fixed, but we also don't want to set people up to fail. So as a promoter, if you're like, I need high levels of detail work, eventually finding somebody who can do that and compliment you is, yeah. is a good idea. Yeah. And the yeah. way that I describe this is I'm a 100% why guy. You mm. know, like I am in the clouds all day dreaming, trying to make sense of the world, trying to get to the truth. And uh, I'm not good in the dirt. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I like, I'm, I'm not a how guy. So I have all these things I want to do, like all these grand visions of how I literally want to change the world. My mission statement is to change the world by inspiring, empowering and transforming the industry. I do believe that. And, but at the same time, it's like, man, changing the world is no easy feat. Like how, like I need to be good at the, the detail oriented process stuff to be able to change the world. So for somebody like me, knowing that now I'm, I'm a promoter, what is my goal to be able to change the world? I think finding those partners, I know a lot of times you mentioned traction before. We talk a lot about people who are visionaries and complimenting them with operators, you know, those types of things. When you need plumbers, like to power an online business as an example, there's so much that goes into the the actual plumbing of everything from the the show notes, something as simple as yeah. show notes. You're right. like, how are the show notes always going to get done on time in a high quality way? Like these are things where putting systems in place might not come naturally to a promoter. So you either know that and you just swallow hard and sort of stretch to do that or, you know, finding people who are naturally good yeah. at that and partnering up. And I think this is why I always say cash flow and people determine your growth because mm-hmm. you need the cash flow to take care and provide security to the people, but it, you can't do it all by yourself. Right. And, uh, I, not at scale. Definitely not at scale. No. no. Um, so it's one of those things of just patience, of just keep showing up and trying to increase the cash flow. So you can't. And then it's like, what do we need most? Then you, then you prioritize the people you need to get to that next level and that next level. And, um, and it's not as much of a challenge in my experience for a promoter. But what you find is that some people have a hard time letting go. Like my Maverick daughter, for example, might have a hard time delegating I'm because it's like, eh, I, so I want it come. done, right? Exactly. <laughs> I'm so, like, here you go. <laughs> yeah, you'll delegate authority. You'll delegate <laughs> yeah. decisions. Anything, delegate, just get off my plate. Yeah. But some people aren't like that. They're very much like, I, I want it done right. I want it done. And, and that really constrains their growth and can actually destroy their business in the process. Which is funny because when I think of I want it done right, I think I need to get this out of my hands as soon as possible because yeah. I'm messing it up. Because like, you have less ego. Exactly. But, yeah. but somebody who's got more of an ego drive or more of a dominance drive, I might say, yeah, no, no, I have to do it my way. I has to be done my way. And yeah. that actually ends up hurting them, right? So, so when you're driven by the mission, you can become a little bit more selfless about it. And when you have the knowledge, the self-awareness from a tool like PI, you understand your pitfalls before they show up. That's the biggest thing. Like if you think about hiring a new person, you could either take months and months to really get to know their intricacies, or you could have them spend six minutes to take the assessment. And then all of a sudden you're ready to go. Got it. So, okay, we're, we're diving into like what it's first like to start working with PI. You take the assessment, then you have your people take the assessment. Is it like a one and done, wham and bam, okay, you're done with PI because you went through these exercises? Or is it like an ongoing 
Like, how does that work? Yeah, I like to counsel my clients to keep it ongoing so it stays alive and stays the most useful because there's always a risk that we try something new. It's like working out. You know, you, oh, I, I worked out last week. I don't have to work out again for a right. couple months. Yeah, no. You, you want to get it ingrained in the culture. One of the best things about PI is it gives us a common language. Now, all of a sudden, all of our workers uh, can speak together about either the profiles or about the tendencies. That's when you really start yeah. seeing next level performance. Yeah, this is why I like EOS so much. And it's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm really trying to lean into educating people more about this the importance of having an entrepreneurial operating system where right. everyone's speaking the same language but this builds on top of that yeah where where it's so important that when i use a word you know exactly what that word means right exactly yeah. so huge huge and i think when you have that operating system it's really important and i yeah. love eos and i love traction and i saw the people part getting one chapter and I'm like pi is that chapter Let, let's expand that out let's give you tools and and the reality is that whenever you define your goals and your, your big rocks and all those things in, in eos terms now we have the context in which we're asking our people to do the work. But what do we know about the people? How what we learn through the predictive index assessment and some of the tooling, everything from manager strategy guides, coaching guides, all kinds of things, how that actually helps them do that work. That's why I like to do something as far as like a slower burn of, of using the PI tools progressively over time. Got it. So you have a partner, right? So yep. you, how many partners are with uh, a PI? Right More now? than five hundred. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. Around the world, yeah. So typically, so you somebody would go to the the Predictive Index website. What is it? What's the actual website? Predictiveindex.com. Uh, and then from there, uh, they would find somebody. They would fill out like they'd get like a demo. They'd take the assessment. Yep. They would have their team take the assessment. And then are they assigned? Do you select? How do you? How do you know? Is there? Do do the partners do PIs and know which organizations are right for them like a couple you- yeah a couple different ways so one is that if a person goes to the website there's a partner directory they might want to find somebody local or in their industry experience or something like that it's totally fine if they just come to pi and they learn that it's a great fit for them we might introduce them to a partner to say you know this is somebody who can help you if you have any specialized needs and goals training whatever it might be and the partners absolutely represent pi in their own dealings in their either their industries their backyard as far as geography and they're introducing in uh the pi concepts and that's the the probably the most common definitely the most common way that um, clients will learn about pis through a partner yeah so if a partner reaches out to a, a restaurant owner and says uh what kind of challenges are you having and they're saying well we got this store opening it's not going well okay great perfect opportunity remember every business problem is a people problem it's true in the restaurant business true in every business so you say, okay, I want to I uh, solve these people problems. Great. Let's get some data because we don't want to do it without data. Let's use some of the tools and let's get your problems fixed. So the partner would be instrumental in making that happen. Got it. Um, so you get assigned a partner and they work with your organization mm-hmm. for as long as – is it like a monthly or annual? Like How does that work? Yeah, an annual subscription. It takes time to get all the results and it's nice to be able to have an unlimited ability to go back and create the tools. Think about an example of let's say we're in month three and we've just hired a new team member. New team member, new team. That's what I always say, right? So now we're going to assimilate them onto the team. So now all of a sudden, creating awareness of other team members and the manager style, like all that's there for you. So think of it more like a gym membership. What are we not talking about that needs to be discussed in terms of PI? Yeah, the one big thing I think is is going back to that talent optimization, which is the overarching umbrella for this. It's just such a fabulous way of thinking about how we can get things right. So in the restaurant business, as an example, we always talk about what I call the business bookends. We have a forward-looking strategy. What do I see and envision for my my restaurant or, or my chain, whatever it is, in the next 12 to 18 months? hasn't happened yet, but that's the forward-looking strategy. That business strategy is going to inform the talent strategy. The way that that strategy of talent is both formulated and executed is going to determine whether I get the results or not. 
Am I going to see the level of profitability I want? Am I going to hit my timelines? Like whatever it is that the restaurant owner wants to achieve in terms of business results, it all has to pass through the people. So that's why talent optimization, I think, was revolutionary for us, that it puts equal parts on the business aspects and the talent aspects. I see a lot of either or. I see a lot of let's talk about the business in isolation as if there aren't any people in it. And I see a lot of HR people talk about people, but don't necessarily tie it to the business. We need the intersection of those two. And that's where talent optimization and the PI tools really fit nicely. Got it. So to kind of backpedal a little bit, there's these four quadrants. Uh, hit me with those quadrants again. So we think innovation and agility. Got it. Teamwork and employee experience. Got it. Process and precision and results and discipline. Where does the cognitive come into this again? It's a totally separate. Totally separate. Yeah, that was just behavioral drives, the behavioral aspects of work that need to be done. That's all in that uh, th- those quadrants that we talked about. So the cognitive is like something that you do. It's an additional behavioral assessment that you take on top of. Yeah, an the- additional assessment on top of that, right. So uh, one thing, so getting personal, mm-hmm. right? I was always somebody who kind of, thought that like I came up with a lot of learning disabilities and I always kind of told myself this narrative that I'm, I'm, I'm a big old dummy. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not good at technical things. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a challenge when I was a commercial pilot, you know, like, and I've evolved the more self-aware I became, I started to realize, listen, like my strength is a social emotional intelligence. But when I was in high school, right. you know, like in the culture in the nineties, you know, like men are supposed to do technical work. Women are supposed to do emotional work, right? This is mm-hmm. kind of like this like cultural thing that we're like, we come up, we, we learn to believe these things about ourselves where I like where I'm going with this is there's different forms of intelligence, mm-hmm. right? So how does like a cognitive assessment take those different forms of intelligence? Yeah. Like, it, how, like it, how does that? So it only measures the one form of intelligence that it was designed to measure, which is just uh, the cognitive general cognitive ability, or sometimes they call it G in, in the uh, psychological uh, parlance. But I'm with you 100 percent. And I think we know so much more about neurodiversity now. I actually write about it in the book as well in a, ch- in a section on fairness. And uh, it's really important to point out that people have different abilities that they're bringing into the workplace and that they're able to apply towards their jobs. And I'm, I'm thankful that we've come a long way since yeah. uh, what you experienced. Yeah. Right, right. Um, and I think the teachers had the good intention. Like when I was a kid, like I, you know, there'd be like a certain part of class where it's like, okay, now you five individuals leave the room so you can go learn over mm-hmm. there. And I just remember feeling like I'm not good enough to be in the class. Right. You know, like, yeah. like I need to go learn over here with the other dummies. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, and some of that's slowly changing and, and and um, it's good to see, but yeah, it's <laughs> the, a long way to go. But during recess, I'll tell you what, I could tell you the social dynamic <laughs> and lunch and everything like, you know, like I, I was a social butterfly. I still am to this day. And I, and I, I empathize with people. I understand people. Part of being a promoter is you can, you're very adaptable to social situations. Like you can literally move from like, and I do this constantly as a podcaster. I'm literally going from one person to the next person and having to match them where they're at. If you're listening to this, you probably pick up on the fact that like for every guest, I'm a little bit different. You know, sometimes I drop them the F bombs left and right. Other times I'm like much more gentle because mm-hmm. I can tell that that person isn't an F bomb dropper. You know what I'm saying? Right. So like back to this idea of like, like you call the uh, cognitive, what was the term you used? Um, the general cognitive ability. Yeah. Yeah. General con, but uh, diversity, cognitive. Oh, neurodiversity. Neurodiversity. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is something that's really interesting as we learn more about the brain and just like we are designed to exist in a, 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 a tribe of individuals who will all bring something special. The, the more diversity in a group, the, the stronger you are and the more, do you want to get into that? Well, I think it's 100 percent true. When you have everyone who thinks the same, you know, this kind of a group think mentality, then innovation is going to go down. Your ability to identify risk is going to go down. And so it might be comfortable to hire people who are just like us. 
but it can be devastating for all the reasons that we were just talking about. So I feel like diversity and, and it takes on many different forms. You know, in the book, I talk a lot about gender diversity, ethnic diversity, but do get into things like personality diversity. Uh, when we think about remote work, for example, extroverts and introverts do not have the same experience on Zoom all day. Right. right? It's, it, it's harder to pick up on social cues for introverts, for example. It's unfair when we just spring on, hey, just give me your thoughts. And introverts are like, oh, God, that's not what I want. Yeah. So it's up to the leader to make sure they, they um, modify the environment to yeah. match the people's needs. But even thinking about people who are like on, on the spectrum, mm-hmm. right? And I think like there was a place for people like that. Like – People who are really good with attention and detail or just have this this, this ability to recall, mm-hmm. which I'm horrible at. <laughs> but some people can literally just like they're like a Rolodex, like they're a walking encyclopedia for subjects. You know, I think there was a place in time for people like that. Um, and then as, ev- as you know, society evolved and moved forward and technology started to replace a lot of these people. And there's, it's harder today to define purpose. Is that a, do you agree or disagree with that statement? I think it can be, and I think that's why it puts a premium on leaders to understand and know their people and to create a level of safety where we can talk about these things. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's interesting. In, in the book, what I had talked about a little bit was when you start to recognize that there are people on your team who may be struggling to say, "Why is somebody across the the desk from me taking you know thirty seconds to write an email? It's taking me five minutes." Right, I'm and that you, thirty minute person. Yeah, thirty minute person. <laughs> and so if I don't know that when I'm your leader, and, and your manager, your supervisor and you're like struggling inside you might even be beating yourself up you might you might be having a terrible experience that i'm not even aware of yeah but understanding that neurodiversity exists and and being able to check in with people like how are you doing and what can we do to help and yeah and and uh that, that's hugely important is there a certain point in someone's personal evolution as like as they evolve into a, a adulthood that like when you're a, a young person will this test be as effective versus being maybe like 28 where your frontal lobes fully deformed? Well, this is a, this or is a, formed, um, not deformed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> maybe a little bit of both. <laughs> right. So uh, this is a, uh, a workplace assessment. So we don't use it for anyone who's under 18 okay. for sure. Yeah. And uh, you know, what we tend to find is that personality is stable, more stable than we might think. And certainly more than other types of, of uh, psychological factors right. for perhaps. But right. um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's durable over time for sure. Cool. I do want to start to pivot towards the book. Mm-hmm. But before we pivot to talk about your book, uh, again, right here, I'm going to hold it up. If you're watching the video, I've got the cover. Uh, disregard the coffee stain on the center of this. Uh, expand <laughs> that the means circle. it was well loved. <laughs> expand the circle. Enlightened leadership for our new world of work. Is there anything that we haven't discussed in terms of PI that you want to get out before we continue on? Well, I think it's just such an incredibly powerful tool. When you think about the ability to collect that data that quickly and to be able to put it into practice, the, everything that's holding back our businesses and holding back the experience of our employees can be addressed yeah. if we take the and make it a priority to, to do so. So awesome. I've seen a lot of tools. I, I take every personality assessment, every other type of workplace assessment I can. Uh, PI is still obviously my favorite because of its its speed yeah. and the value you can get from it for such a brief assessment. I've taken three assessments to this point. This was by far the easiest, yeah. um, for sure, and I, it also I I feel like I, I identified the most mm. with what I took. And just if, you, if you're listening to this and you're curious, yeah, I can't remember the, the the name of the other three, but in my my personality assessments, I'm a community builder, a, an influencer, and a uh, promoter. So <laughs> there's some I feel like there's some 
correlation there. Oh, there should absolutely be yeah. a correlation there. You would hope because yeah. a lot of them measure either adjacent or very similar factors, and there's just different approaches. And uh, we could go on and on, but you know, there's there's thousands of of workforce assessments. The question is, what's the one that's the best fit for your working environment? What's going to give you the most predictive power for yeah. the minutes spent, right? Because you're talking often about candidates. You don't want to tell a candidate, sit down for 45 minutes, take the assessment. They're like, I'm not going to apply for this job. Yeah. But when you look at those three assessments that I've gotten, like yeah. really at the end of the day, I'm trying to build a community of people that I believe in and I'm trying to, and I'm promoting these people yeah. and saying like, I'm not the person that has all the answers. These people are. And it's just funny because everything that I do, I just, I just feel like it's, it's all there and like my assessments and yeah. like they're all slightly different, but generally like the work I'm doing today, it's just cool to know that like I'm, I, for the first time in my life feel like I've self-actualized. Like I am in the seat. I'm supposed to be doing the work. That. I'm I meant love to that. Do. I yeah. love that. Yeah. So you've gotten a lot of face validity from different assessments to kind of triangulate on yeah. who you are, which is naturally in line with where you want to be. Yeah. yeah. So do consider these personality assessments, Definitely. And these behavioral Definitely. assessments. They're so powerful. Self-awareness is so important. And in just having awareness of the people that you work with is also just so important. One more quick break to thank our sponsors. We're going to be back to talk about expand the circle. This episode is brought to you by Reachify. Why are you still taking phone calls when you have online services that can support the majority of your callers needs? Redirect your callers so you can focus on the food and the guests across the counter. Reachify is powerful and flexible. For example, with advanced automation and call deflection, Reachify prevents missed caller opportunities and diverts callers to online actions such as online ordering or reservations, which means orders come in faster and more accurately. Reachify delivers safe and secure communication across multiple platforms with intelligently routed messages to the right people, thereby increasing accountability within the team, allowing your in-office and mobile teams to stay connected. With Reachify, you save hours of labor expense by reducing dedicated phone staff. As a matter of fact, some Reachify users have seen a reduction in 40% of their phone staff. That's pretty good. And how's this for a cherry on top? There are no long-term contracts. That's awesome. Reachify. Be in control of the conversation you want to have when you want to have them. Hop on to reachify.io slash unstoppable to find out how to revolutionize the way your restaurant does business. And when you use that link, get one month free after onboarding. That's reachify.io slash unstoppable. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. 
recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. P. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. We're back, and now we're going to unpackage, expand the circle, enlighten leadership for our new world of work. Man, this book resonated so much with me and reinforced so much of what I've learned in the past 10 years of just, I mean, not just what I've learned, but also where are we going? Mm. You know, and like with the mission statement to inspire, empower and transform the industry so we can transform the world. Tell me this book wasn't written for me. I know. Right. Like (laughs) what was your inspiration for this book? Yeah, no, I appreciate you saying that. I'm humbled by your reaction to it. It's fabulous. And it was really born of my own leadership journey as well. Everything that I had experienced uh, leading up to, I include some of my military experiences in there as well. But the real launching off point for me was hitting a wall in my leadership. It was uh, during the pandemic. And when the wheels came off, I said, man, I got to change my approach. So where were you? Take us to that point. Yeah, so I was still at Predictive Index and uh, had been leading the product team here for probably about seven years at that point. A little fuzzy on the on the numbers yeah. and the math. And uh, loved the company, but I fell out of love with the work I was doing. And the pandemic, you know, when it first happened, I think I was sitting in this exact room we're in right now. And I said to the CFO, do you really think we'll have to go home for two weeks? <laughs> I had no idea. And none of us really knew what the heck was going to happen. But here, you know, when you find yourself five, six months in, I think like a lot of people, I had my priorities reevaluated. Like, what am I doing? What's my relationship with work itself? What was your relationship with work? I think it was always work first, Mm -hmm. trying to figure out like what is everyone else's needs versus slowing down and listening into, you know, what what I'm really kind of all about. There have been times in my life where I've been very principled, made decisions like to go get my PhD because I wanted to learn how to help people or to join PI in the first place because I wanted the nature of the types of products I built to make people's work lives better. That was very intentional. But I can't say that every day and every moment of every day I felt like I was necessarily on mission. So the company's mission was great, but my personal mission within it started to change. And I think I wasn't allowing myself to evolve. So I, I think falling out of love with your work is one thing. But when you fall out of love with yourself, you know, that's another. How was your personal mission? How was it different? Like, how was it evolving? Uh, well, in terms of at that time? Yeah. Like, well, like how you said, like you were trying to fall in love with or out of love with yourself and your yeah. personal mission was starting to become misaligned with your business and your work life. Or at least unclear. So, you know, so it's like, what what is your, your sum total of what you're working on and what is it that you're doing? How are you showing up? Are you being intentional? So, so what was going on in your life where you felt like you needed change? Well, I think, first of all, scheduling a midlife crisis in the middle of a global pandemic, <laughs> not a great idea, right? right? I think there's probably some of that in there too. But there was just so much um, time that I had spent it without having really reflected on it. I like to say that in my my very first leadership assignment, I was in this warrior phase. And it was just all about 
you know, mission. Mission. Yeah. And then I went through this scholar phase, and I spent six years studying PhD and and uh, learning about psychology and applying it, and that was great too. But I didn't realize that I was now ready for my next chapter, which I've kind of entered into this sort of sage mode where I'm thinking a little bit more deeply about life and, mm-hmm. and meaning and how yeah. to bring that into work. Yeah. I think we also exist right now during this time where Eastern and Western, like we live in one world, like mm-hmm. this globalization, you can literally be on the other side of the planet in a day, right? right. Um, so the world is getting much smaller. Eastern culture and Western culture is colliding. And we're starting to realize that neither one is better than the other. Right. And that there's actually a lot of truth to both sides. I, I think that's true. But I was living a very much a Western life. And I've always had interest in, in Eastern influences, you know, from, from back in the day. I, I definitely had a, a minor meditation practice that I drew an interest in. I was aware of of uh, world spiritual traditions. When you and say practice, you don't mean you're like te- like you not like a like a – a physician that has a practice, but you're personally practicing. Personal practice, yeah. yeah sitting down and, and trying to be on the cushion and those sorts of things. Yeah. And, and I had abandoned that for more than 15 years by the time the pandemic had come. And, and I never was a big yoga person. So I, I agree with you. You're starting to see a lot of Eastern influence coming into the Western well, culture. Well, what's also really interesting is the Western culture is starting to prove, i.e. science, you know, uh, you know, the scientific process. And if it's not real and the science can prove it, is starting to prove Eastern culture, which is, it's like coming full circle. Yeah. I, th- like, I think an integration. Yeah. yeah. Where it was just generations in of generations, thousands, tens of thousands of years of people just passing down knowledge, which, which is what I think of when I think of Eastern culture, mm-hmm. where you have continents that are now underwater, right? That were, that there's history there. Um, the Sunder- the Sutherlands or whatever it's called, mm-hmm. basically where Indonesia is today, there wasn't a giant above surface continent there with, tens of thousands of years theoretically of just culture that's been wa- like literally washed away. Right. But that culture moved through the people in Eastern culture of just, just awareness of connectivity and everything that's going on. And we kind of lost that, but I feel like now it's coming. It's, it's make, maybe never, it, it was never lost on the Eastern cultures, but in the Western world, like it was so much more about, I don't, don't want to put words into your mouth. This is your time to talk. So what's going through your mind? Well, I definitely believe that um, you know whether we're talking about East or West exclusivity is is an error, right? Because I think there is this universal human condition right. that, we, that we all experience, and it's not like we don't have issues in the Eastern world, we don't have issues in the Western world, vice we, versa. We see what happens when we take apart, you know, the Amazon and how that mm-hmm. affects things in like Europe. it's all connected in ways yeah. that we can't even really really fully appreciate so at the time you know i'm sitting here thinking i'm not showing up as the leader i want to be i've kind of uh knew i needed to make a pivot and then my father got a call from his oncologist and he was diagnosed as having a cancerous tumor on mm. his kidney and it just was a, a mortal reminder to me that we know how this movie ends mm. and it, it was one of those situations where i was like when everything is sort of taken away you know when you kind of come to that realization like how are you going to respond and I knew that nothing I had been pursuing recently has had, was really preparing me for that. Yeah. So I had it just sent me back to basics, and I reached, uh, I went to the, my bookshelf, and I had a, a book called The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, and it was a book I hadn't looked at in fifteen years, and it really started to rekindle for me my interest in meditation and mindfulness and grounding myself and thinking more deeply about existence. And what happened, Eric, is I'm sitting there on this cushion and all I can think about is work because I suck at meditation. And I started to mingle my ideas of Western psychology and leadership and Eastern philosophy. And I started to hit on the fact that these things are a lot more connected than we've certainly than I had ever thought about before. 
and it really came to me in a flash that a, a meditation technique about working from the inside out and wishing wellness for yourself yes. and maybe your spouse and kids and then coworkers on and on. Growth comes from the inside Growth out. Growth comes from the inside out. And, and I said that's exactly how leadership develops yes. too. And, and that became a, the framework we talked about earlier. And that's why I say always – Behind every great restaurant is a great person. Mm. You know, it starts from the inside out. If you want to, if if you're if you're struggling on growth, it's not on looking out for more opportunity. It's going well. How do we turn inward and say how do we are how are we how how can we do what we're already doing better? Right. You know, and it's like it's stuff like that, and like that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned. It's not about looking out; it's about looking in. Yeah, it's about you know showing up the same way better or getting better every day. You know. Yeah, and I think so. When when you think about a, a technique, a, a meditation technique like expanding the circle of compassion, starting with ourselves and working our way out, what I think about is expanding the circle of leadership. If that were true in a framework, like what would it mean to lead yourself? And so, as a Western trained psychologist, now I've got to go back and figure out what does the research show. And that became the way I built out that framework is to understand, like we've been talking about today, we talked a lot about self awareness, and many leaders think they're self aware, but they're not accurately self aware. But that's just the first step on that journey of leading yourself. The very next one throws leaders right on their butt, which is self-acceptance. Mm, I struggle with this. Oh, one, man. man. This, when I was reading the book, <laughs> I was just like, oh, this is hard for me to read right now. It's hard for me, too, because the reality is that in, in my case, ha- having struggled with imposter syndrome, being that insecure overachiever, uh, in, in the psychological parlance, they would say that I have outsourced my self-worth. I look outside of myself for ways of feeling like I am whole or complete or worthy, whatever it might be. And this is something I've struggled with for decades, right? And so when that happens, self-acceptance is hard to come by. But inevitably, when you do the hard work of awareness, you're going to uncover things that are, use whatever term you want, chinks in your armor, flaws in your game, shortcomings, things you would naturally be inclined to hide from the world. Like, don't look at that. The trauma. The trauma, all of that. But the reality is if you can make peace with those things, accept those things, and bring them into your leadership, you're going to show up in terms of your leadership capacity that much more. They're yeah. an essential part of you. We don't yeah. have to feel incomplete or not whole. And it's this, these things you're talking are usually a, a big source of our insecurities and our, our fears and our anxieties. And it's, it's all – so this is all happening while I'm, I, I had – I don't know if you're familiar with Tom Sterner's work of the practicing mind fully engaged and it's just a thought. I literally had him on the show a few months ago, mm. right? And it's all about this stuff that we're talking about of like going inward and self-awareness and, and all these anxieties, these fears you have, they're literally just thoughts. And as soon as you choose to forgive yourself for the, what's the word you use? Not forgive, but self-acceptance, uh, self-acceptance. Yeah. That's the, all this is. It's like, listen, like I forget, like if, unless you forgive yourself, you'll never move beyond it. You'll never like this holding you back. Hundred percent. And there was a book that really helped me when I was kind of at my worst during the pandemic, which was called A Liberated Mind, and it was Mm -hmm. by Stephen Hayes, and he was the creator of acceptance and commitment therapy. And so this is a very well documented therapeutic approach now. And what he talks about is the same thing: you are not the content of your thoughts. You can create that healthy separation and observe them from a new perspective, and and make peace with them. And and what he calls turn toward them. Right. So it's like we don't have to run away because you can never run far enough away. But when you turn and face them with courage, then all of a sudden you can achieve those breakthroughs. Right. I mean, when we're trying to learn new things or grow, sometimes we don't do it because we tell ourselves we're not good enough, or I'm not. I won't. I'm literally going through this right now with learning videography and video editing. I'm like, it's such a huge. 
task. It's such a detail-oriented task. And I've already confessed to you that I don't feel like I'm a detail-oriented person. I'm a why guy, right? right? But I don't have to do it forever. But I, I need to do it. And then eventually, this is this will be what helps me push it over the edge. And then once I can get it over the edge, then I have the resources to say, hey, you do it. And I outsource it. And I give up that responsibility to True. somebody else. But you have to be willing to get outside of your comfort zone temporarily to, to get the thing to a certain place. Yeah. hundred percent. Right? And, yeah. and it's scary as shit because yeah. you're like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to go and do something over and over again that I'm really not good at. Right. Well, the answer is yeah, you are. Yeah. And it, but as soon, as soon as you kind of give yourself permission to do that, the it's amazing how easy it is and permission to stink at it. Right. I mean, I don't know if you go back and listen to some of your early podcast episodes, I Try not to. you try not to <laughs> because who would want to, but the reality is that that was a moment in time. It was yeah. the best you could do at that moment. And so you're it, exactly where you're supposed to be right now. A hundred percent. And so, so that's where self-acceptance is something like if we do a poor job of helping leaders develop self-awareness, we do an amazingly poor job of helping them with self, I'm sorry, with self-awareness, helping them to develop self-acceptance. And no matter whether you're podcasting or running a restaurant, there's those areas of of uncomfort you have to extend yourself into to grow to get to the next point so including is, your circumstances yeah so this year everything changed we moved from this area of growth at all costs now it's like economics we need to really start to tighten up and start to operate more efficiently a lot of people have either lost jobs or they've been affected in some way or maybe the company's mission has changed they have to do more with less accepting the fact that everything's constantly changing but wait a minute i liked it the way it was well, nothing was ever going to stay the way it was. Everything's right. always changing. Now here comes chat GPT or AI, anything like this. Yeah. The world is constantly in flux. So acceptance is not even just about accepting your limitations in yourself, but accepting that nothing is permanent. That's a big part of it too. Fun fact about chat GPT. I always get it backwards. GPT, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I asked the question, what's the best restaurant business podcast? And it said restaurant unstoppable. There you go. <laughs> I was it like, this is, is a infallible. moment of truth right here. I didn't like, I didn't like AI until that point. And that, now you've made peace with it. I like it. <laughs> so anyway, um, I, when you say enlightened, uh, what does enlightenment mean to you? Yeah. So enlightenment in my terms, when I use it in the book is all about moving past outdated attitudes and behaviors. Because what happens is like the, a lot of what passes for leadership, sort of state-of-the-art leadership technique today is decades, decades old. And the, what I realized when I sat down and tried to think through what I was experiencing is that we've seen this fundamental evolution in the, wor- the work we do. The work we do today post-pandemic is almost unrecognizable. And this is true, for example, in the restaurant business. How many have gone to uh, not even just sit-down service, but the nature of the consumer has changed? Many restaurants are frustrated because now all of a sudden people want to do takeout and, and alarming rates, right? Well, there's this constant evolution. It happens. The workers have changed too, though. So when you think back to my earlier example of the waitress in Phoenix, it was like, I want to be treated well. I want my owners, you know, business owners to care about me. She wouldn't have had that luxury during the Industrial Revolution, right. for example. She'd have been happy to have a job to be able to put food on the table, right? But now she could waitress you know, wherever she would like. Right. So, so there's been this evolution. But leadership itself is still built on a foundation of outdated attitude, attitudes and beliefs about how it's supposed to work. And that, to me, was a big problem. When you start to see that everything has changed but leadership, we've got to move past these. So what, know, Sorry, go finish your thought. I was thinking these me first, you know, this, this ego-driven – it's all about uh, command and control, uh, you know, uh, authoritative sty- type styles of, of leadership. They're, they're just, they don't work anymore. Yeah. So you talk early in the book about the, the evolution of leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how, uh, was it authoritarian? Where are we? Um, yeah. Yeah. Approach. Mm-hmm. It started with authoritarian, sorry, authoritarian, uh, transactional, transformative, servant, authentic. And then today, 
we are at enlightened. Is that enlightened in leadership to your, your words? Is that the order? Right? Yeah, that's my that's my thesis is that it's time for the next era of leadership. And I think that this is where it was very ironic to me that when we were talking about Eastern philosophy from you know, you know 2,500 years ago, actually holds the key, in my experience, to the future of leadership here in the West. Yeah. Uh, and specifically why? Specifically because of the nature of the selflessness that we need, the mindfulness that uh, is so rampant today you know, without it. The, the nature of stress and burnout that we're experiencing are a direct reflection of not having mindfulness. The need for compassion. When you look at surveys, they talk about what's the most desirable management quality. It's empathy. Right. Like we're starting to see that the workers themselves, the people we're being asked to lead, want something different of us. Mm. And that's where I think that rather than try to pretend that more of the same in the West is going to give us what we need, we can borrow from wisdom traditions and figure out how to incorporate those to yeah. get the job done today. I, I asked you specifically about the word enlightenment because are you familiar with Danny Meyer's uh, Enlightened Hospitality? No, no. So uh, a book he wrote, it's been called the, the Bible of the hospitality industry. It's like most people who are passionate about the restaurant industry have read Danny Meyer's uh, Setting the Table. Um, and it's all about, uh, in that book he talks, sorry, it's called Setting the Table, but he talks about enlightened hospitality in that mm-hmm. book. But it follows the same structure that you follow of this idea of, you know, first you start with your taking care of your, he didn't talk about yourself first, but I think that if he was sitting at the table today, he would agree that it starts with you. But when you, in, in terms of service or servitude, it starts with your employees then it goes to your guests, then it goes to your community, then it goes to your stakeholders, then it goes to, you know, like the greater good. And mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of similarity. So definitely. So what, so is, isn't, when we say enlightenment, is it that idea of this ripple out? Is that, how does that idea of rippling out tie back to enlightenment? I would say that the way I, when I describe enlightened leadership as an example, later in the book, I talk about this equation about how we increase our capacity. So how do we drive up things like mindfulness and compassion, but also wisdom? And I think what, uh, in the book that you just described, it talks about the inherent connectedness. If I treat my wait staff well, then they're going to treat the customers well, which will produce a great return for the shareholders, which allows us to spill profits, for example, and their benefits into the world. So there's this, this connectivity that's in place that we don't always stop and think about, but it's there. That would yeah. be an example of a, of a wisdom revelation that um, is too often overlooked. But we only have so much energy, and we can only put our energy in so many different directions. So right. first, like... You can't expect from your employees what you're not willing to do yourself. True. Right. So you got to put that energy into yourself first. And then when your cup starts to overflow, your next priority are the people closest to you, the people that are there with you side by side with you every day, your employees. Right. And if you can lift them up to a level that you're at, then they're going to lift the guest up to that level. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then it just mm-hmm. starts to ripple out. You make a huge point, which is that if I, some people, especially like in nonprofit or in certain healthcare settings, will deplete themselves beyond a reasonable degree because they're so mission driven. They want to take care of everybody else. It happens with working moms too and working parents which is like i'm going to take care of everybody else's needs and realize that they're they're not taking care of themselves we don't want that we need to make sure that we have our our cup filled to your point but then to overfill it well that is the epitome of leadership in my experience where it's like more more me me right and all that does is it it waters down it it destroys value throughout the rest of the system and i feel like that's kind of when i think about my responsibility and again i want i don't want to make this about me. But when I think about my responsibility with this podcast, Restaurant Unstoppable, and my mission to to transform the world, one of the things I've, one of my aha moments, my enlightened moments is like, we only need so much and you will never have enough money. Mm -hmm. There's not a dollar amount that will solve all of your problems. They actually say that 
you need to make between, I think it's like maybe like around $80,000 or $100,000 in that ballpark, depending on where you live in the world, that if you can make that much money, most of your most basic needs, you talk about this in the right. book, mm-hmm. uh, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, mm-hmm. your most basic human needs, i.e. Uh, physiological and security, are met. And beyond that, it's, you don't really need money to, to achieve self-actualization or self, what's the... You actually, oh man, there's so much Self, more we want to talk about. Self-transcendence. Yes, yeah. self-transcendence. Yeah, so. Maslow continued on his hierarchy and his study because he became very uncomfortable that self-actualization, people really glommed onto that. But yeah. it was very much about me and ego-driven and cat. Very Western. Very Western. Yeah. And he went on to, to say there's more. There's a next level, which is all about transcending, like serving something bigger than yourself. It's all connected. Yeah, huge. And that really led me to this discovery of what I call the, the three Bs, or I call them the three killer Bs, which is what all of our human needs at work really come down to the need for being belonging and something bigger than myself. And that last one is where you hear that transcendence come in. So when you describe a podcast mission, that's about transforming the world. What I like to say is your aspiration is outside in. You're starting with the world and working back into yourself. But your accountability in your action is inside out. What yeah. can I do? I can line up the this right. This is guests. where I struggle sometimes. Right? Is it on myself? And you know, and but not to get. I want to. I want to focus on the book. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, w- let's talk about this. The, the the. Actually, let me let me finish my original thought. But yeah, like you'll never have enough money. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, if you truly want to have happiness, it comes from knowing that you're you're connected to that something bigger. Right, and that you, it's beyond self actualization and knowing where my seat is on the bus. But how how is this bus going to change the world? And social capitalism. And you came to the same conclusion in this book that I came to, where if we're going to make, if we're going to transform the world and transform the way for our new world of work collectively, we need it starts with changing values and changing the culture of society. And yes. that's what we're here to do today. And that's what this book is here to do is to help people realize that. It's collective thinking that's going to make you happy and you will never have enough. It's not about winning this idea. I think you talk about winning in the book, this Western idea of like you have to win. It's about us all collectively winning. 100%. And and when you start looking at things like the movement towards corporate social responsibility or uh, ESG, which is all about environmental social governance – conscious capitalism, these are happening inside of our organizations. The most elite organizations are serving more than just the profitability motive, right? And when we look at our our youngest employees who are entering the workforce now, they want meaning. They want purpose. We see this everywhere now. So if we're looking at a certain amount of selflessness of our organizations and of our workers, where's the selfless form of leadership? Where's the part that it's not just about piling on more for myself, I think that's where we need that sort of guidance. And that's what I've hoped to provide in the book. We've got 10 minutes. What do you want to talk about? I would love to talk about the practicality of embracing this type of a philosophy. What happened for me personally is that when I started to realize there was a different way to lead, that was important. But when I started to recognize that by bringing these enlightened techniques in, it made everything so much easier, Eric. You mentioned a couple of times now that you talk about struggling or the self part is hard. If it feels like work, it's work. And what I found more than anything is that when it comes to a more natural form of leadership, you find that the energy just flows more naturally through you because you kind of get out of the way. Mm -hmm. All all that ego stuff and all that sort of uh, uh, Mimi that kind of gets out of the way. And then you can serve both the mission and those around you in a much more natural way. 
And I feel like this is why I say that my mission now is to help leaders liberate themselves from these outdated beliefs. It feels like that. It feels liberating to be able to say, I don't have to be somebody else. I don't have to try to hide oh, things. It's, it's incredible. So that's why I say everybody deserves to have the experience of enlightened leadership, both for themselves, yes, but also for those around them. I mean, it also – talk about vulnerability in the book, right? And that's yeah. one of the topics. And in the, when you give yourself uh, with forgiveness, right, you, you're, when you're admitting your, your fault – it's a very vulnerable place. And when you say this out loud, 100%. why is that even more vulnerable? Yeah. So what it does or is you feel more. like you're going to die. Yeah. You feel like, oh my gosh, I've laid myself bare and everyone's going to just not take me seriously or not have respect for me. The opposite happens. People are actually more drawn to why? you. I think that they realize that you're human. Mm. I feel like the, the answer to the quiz at the end of the day is that we need a more human style of leadership. The business world tends to dehumanize. We've talked about that a little bit earlier. But now when it comes to rehumanizing it and showing up with our humanity and leading with that, that's the only thing that really insulates us from this this sort of mechanistic yeah. approach to business. Are you familiar with Doug? Is it Rashkoff? I don't know. I'm sorry. No. The Team Human. Have you heard of that book, nope. Team Human? It's just like, oh, man, this, this gentleman, uh, um, I think I'm getting his name wrong, but the book was recently referred to me as this idea of just – team human and how we're how the world is moving in a dehumanized direction agree 100 percent. yep and what is what does a more human direction look like mm-hmm. like what what is and that's what he kind of talks about in that book but what are your thoughts on that answer that question i think recognizing that we are part of a shared humanity and a part of a shared human condition and that it can it shows up everywhere so like let's say i have somebody who shows up for work for their shift inside the restaurant a couple minutes late well clearly that's not a good thing we mm-hmm. need people to be on time however do I actually know what's going on as the leader? Do I have I taken the time to understand what's going on in that person's life? Mm. Am I really going in or am I making assumptions right. that they're lazy, that they're, you know, whatever it might be? I hear a yeah. lot of this about Gen Z. But the reality is that it it um there's very human things happening in all of our lives. And so the the willingness to go there and to be human and show up with your own humanity and saying, you know, I had a rough night last night. You know, I had a sick kid, and right. and so I'm not 100. percent So if you know if you need me, just make sure that you 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 know. Or uh, creating that aware. culture of knowing that there's an open, like it's open. That's right. Creating the culture of open communication where I want you to feel like you have the safe space. You talk about this in the book, where people can tell you what's going on, and they're not going to be battered down. Because that's right. Of it. Creating safety, leading with compassion. Yeah. You know, having that understanding. Absolutely. And instead of saying, "Why are you late? Are you okay?" Yeah. Now, if we're talking about a repeated pattern and there's not a good reason, then we need to take some corrective action. But to lead with empathy first, you know, we don't need to be silly about it. But I think that being more human in the way we show up to one another is is a huge part of that. Absolutely. So when I look at the future of leadership, it is all about how we take this more of an enlightened approach because everything else has changed and everything's constantly changing. That's not going to stop. The byproduct of all my research showed that fear, time and again, is what destroys everything good in relationships and inside of organizations. And fear is because of fear for self. It always comes back down to that that ego drive versus love for others. And I think that we're not yet comfortable talking about things like love in the workplace, but, you know, we need to get there. So I want to wrap up there in the uh, page 215. I think it's the chapter called uh, lighting a lamp for other leaders. This this chapter, man, Mm. a light bulb went off in my head. Nice. You know, because we have restaurant stoppable network where my my vision of the network is, Hey, like I'm going out there, I'm learning these things. If the, if our mission is to inspire, empower and transform the industry, this is the inspiration, 
right? This is me going out, sharing stories, telling, showing people that, hey, you can do it yourself. And the empowerment is like, what are the clues we're picking up during these conversations? That happens in the network is like, okay, here are the clues. Let's pull back the layers. Let's, let's, let's implement this stuff. And like, so we talk about um, like lighting the path for others. And like you literally, like you, there's one, two, three, four, five, um, I don't know what you'd call them, uh, like stops along the way or like, you know, practice, pitch, plan, pilot, uh, propagate, you mm-hmm. know, like, I was like this is how we're going to do it. I love this it. is how you, you like, get the blueprint. All, yeah. It's like literally right here. I love it, it. I, I, I've been struggling with like, what is the network? How do I communicate this? But it's, it's about lifting up others. It's about taking what we've learned, br- creating a space where I can invite people in promote them and say these people can help us all get better and this this is how we do it and creating a community of people practicing enlightenment and and how to be better business owners not just the the how to but the the perspective the values the bigger picture thinking you know yeah when you make that clear for people they're more willing to go on that journey with you and yeah. so i love what you're doing from that perspective we need it absolutely in our restaurants in our world in our lives period so yeah. I, I just my hat's off to you I yeah love man it. well thank you for giving me the blueprint uh and i mean what is the final message you want to deliver before we wrap up I think the fact that, that it's completely possible to take on this this uh, evolved leadership approach and, and only good things come of it. I think that, you know, it sounds – so some people, that maybe it sounds a little woo-woo. But the reality is the Western psychologist, I found more more research that says only good things happen when we take these techniques. When you start looking at the level of innovation, presenteeism, you talk about financial performance, everything gets better. And the experience for those around us get easier. Mental wellness gets better. Really important topic. Everything gets better when we take this type of an approach. Yeah. And I don't know if you guys caught it, but Homeboy here has his PhD. You know, like we're talking to a professional right now, an expert in the subject, somebody who's dedicated their life to empowering workplace performance, you know, and people and just in changing the world. So uh, thank you for your work that you're doing with PI. Thank you for this book, the, the thoughts you shared uh, and the empowerment that you provide in this book. And um, if we're listening to this and you have our interest and we're maybe interested in A, working with PI predictive index and B picking up your book, like give us two calls to action. Yep. I'd say predictiveindex.com. You can learn all about, you know, my favorite, absolute favorite instrument on the planet. And then if you want to learn more about me in the book, just go to mattpepsel.com. Awesome. And, um, I feel comfortable saying this, we can always pause later and delete this out if it's not good, but I had Ed Doherty on the show. Ed is a partner of PI. Um, and that I believe the plan is to, to partner up with Ed. And if you're interested in PI, um, I think the plan is to connect you guys with Ed. I love it. Let's and, include that in the show notes if you can. Yeah, absolutely. Wait, get you, get you right? directly over to Ed. Um, and I think there, Ed has, I'm not, I'm not going to share what he's willing to, but he's willing to split the profit with me because I don't know where that is yet, but because we haven't worked out the details. So if you are interested in PI, please work with Ed. Ed is an amazing guy, uh, really inspired by him, and he's willing to give back to Restaurant Unstoppable and this mission to inspire and empower the industry. So it all comes back full circle. And, We're all in it together. I yeah, love it. And uh, I just I, I hope that this is just the beginning of our relationship. I, I hope to be a practitioner of PI and to help as many people as possible find this work and this empowering resource that is in PI. And also your book, we'll have a link in the show notes, um, Expand the Circle awesome stuff matt pepsil thank you so much it's two o'clock you have a meeting you have to go but there is no questioning my friend you are unstoppable thank you eric appreciate you having me cheers 
There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Matt Pepsil, for coming on and for sharing what you've learned after dedicating your life to this idea of enlightened leadership, man. Uh, this stuff inspired me. This stuff helped me find the clarity in what I'm doing here at Restaurant Unstoppable and with Restaurant Unstoppable Network. I mean, if one of the biggest lessons I've learned on this podcast is behind every great restaurant and every great business, for that matter, is a great person. And you can't be a great business owner, a great restaurateur, until you've worked on yourself, until you've lifted yourself up so you can pull up others. And so you can pull up your entire team, your entire organization, your entire community. And ultimately, if we give enough people these tools and this mindset, we can change the restaurant industry and we can change the world. That's what we're here to do. And if the podcast's job is to go out and to do the research and to turn over the rocks and to find the clues and to inspire you with these stories, then the network's job is to empower through unpackaging and going deeper and creating community around what we're learning through all this hard work, through all these conversations. So head over to restaurantstoppablenetwork.com or head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 1015. We'll have a link in the show notes for you to join the network for a 30-day trial. Uh, I'm going to get Ed Doherty in the network to answer any and all of your questions about, or maybe I don't, honestly, as I'm recording this, we don't know at what capacity or exactly how it's going to manifest, but we're going to be working with, with predictive index and Ed Doherty is going to be our go to coach on this subject. So if you would like to use predictive index in your business and you want to work with somebody, if you want to unpackage and, and implement this stuff into your business, then our go-to guy is Ed Doherty. So email me at eric at restaurantunstoppable.com or join the network and we'll get you started with predictive index today. That's it for now. Uh, we cannot say goodbye without saying thank you to the people who make this possible. Thank you to Jerry Parisi with Sumadre Podcast for the copyright editing. Thank you to Calamiola, our community manager in the network. And thank you to Anna Tazen for your executive support and counsel with the Good Kind Consulting. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out. <laughs>